Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Marshall. Um, I'm one of the, the pastors here at the church, and we're really glad that you're here with us. Came to a recent uh, discovery that maybe you guys already knew about, but it was news to me. Did you know that there are people who have been hurt by past church experiences? Yeah, like you may be surprised to know that there may even be people in this room who have had some negative experiences as a result of being a part of a church community. Uh, even more than that, some people have maybe even felt like they've been let down by the church or they haven't had all of their needs met by being a part of you know, Christian relationships. And I'm guessing that everyone in this room probably ha has at some point in your life had a negative experience in church world. And if you haven't yet, give us time. We'll get there, I promise. Now, for many, the wounds from, you know, the his from your history in the church may be really deep. Um, they may be personal. And for some of you, they may even still feel fresh. And uh, my hope, honestly, all of our hope as a church family is that you experience safety and that you experience healing and belonging here at the Vineyard. For those of you who don't know my story, uh, I grew up a church kid. Like from day one, I have been involved in church world. My parents, you know, from before I was born, they were in a traveling praise band called Heaven Song. So that just gives you a, like a, a little context of how churchy this kid is. And my parents, we were super involved in all of the church things. They were involved in the worship teams and small group and Awana and Royal Rangers. We were at church like four or five nights a week, it felt like, for stretches of my childhood. And my family's experience in the church is something of like a bit of a mixed bag, we can say. Like tons of profoundly beautiful moments, but also lots and lots of hurts. And in my early 20s, um, Carly and I, we got married. And shortly after we got married, uh, we were just these passionate followers of Jesus. We wanted to go all in, serve God with our whole lives. Like, let's just do this thing. Let's quit school. Let's move away. Let's go serve Jesus. It's going to be awesome. And so um, we, we ended up packing up all of our things to go and part, be part of something that was big and exciting in Kansas City, this big ministry. And we moved all the way, you know, to the other side of the country or to the middle of it to be part of this passionate ministry, this big ministry that was full of like real deal Christians who were sold out for Jesus. And when we got there, almost immediately, my dream of being part of this thing started to deflate. All of these passionate people who I looked up to and admired they, I still looked up to and admired them, but I had zero access to them, and they seemed pretty disinterested in, in sort of connecting with me. And within a few weeks of being in Kansas City, I started to feel something I had never experienced before, especially in church world. I felt totally alone and unseen. And here I was working this crappy job, uh, spending a ton of time alone by myself in my apartment, trying to meet people, trying to develop community, and all I ended up with was a handful of shallow relationships. And so after seven months, we were ready to call it quits, to move back home. Carly was going to do grad school, and we, we moved back disillusioned, disappointed, 
and totally confused. You see, I thought in my head it made sense that this place that was like full of passionate Christians, that this place was going to be different. And it seemed to me that the community that we went to in Kansas City ended up not being much better or much different than the rest of church world. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Like where you go to be a part of something, like you join a new church or a new small group or something, and you start out just really excited about it, but then, you know, over a little bit of time, you just become disillusioned because the community that you joined failed to live up to what it claimed to be. Now, if you were here last week, uh, I preached a sermon from Romans 12 that can easily set us up for failure. Like, we, we cast this aspirational vision for becoming a church where everyone can find a place to belong and to be a church where everyone can find a place to contribute the gifts and the talents and the passions that God has put in them. And I wanted to circle back to last week's sermon because there was a really important point that I forgot to drive home while I was preaching it, and it's this, we will fail you. Like, not on purpose, but we will fail to live up to what God has called us to be and what we just claimed that we were becoming. In fact, every church throughout history will fail at this. If you, if you go back to the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, there's this, there's this passage in Acts 2 where we read about what is sort of like the ideal church, the dream of what the church was meant to be from how it started out right after the Holy Spirit was poured out. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 2. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Like, what an amazing expression of church, right? Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of something that was just electric and alive and everybody loves each other so much that they're selling their houses to pay off somebody else's debts. They're eating dinners together and praising God and worshiping. They're having miracles and signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. Everybody is thrilled and excited. Beautiful. This is how the church started. What a compelling witness to the rest of the world. But all you have to do is read just a little bit further, and you quickly discover that this ideal community had a lot of broken people in it. Like, we discover very quickly after this that people were lying to each other. In fact, leaders in the church are deceiving each other. That there's, there are theological disagreements, and, and literal splits are, are taking place. Leaders who are committed to each other in sort of like a deep relationship, saying we're going to be in this together come hell or high water, they end up breaking apart their relationship and going separate ways. Core leaders of this early church fall into cultural pressures, particularly evil, like dark pressures of racism and systemic evil. The honeymoon of idealism always inevitably gives way to the real pain of difficult relationships. Last week, we claimed that we believe that the church is the hope of the world. 
And most of us who have been around church world for any amount of time from our real life experience would call this BS. And with all of this in mind, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, he doesn't lower the bar. He actually keeps doubling down in his call for the church to become the church, which finally brings us to today's teaching text in Romans chapter 12. If you're new, uh, we've been walking through just a single chapter of the book of Romans, um, and today we've reached sort of a power-packed section of the commands that Paul gives to the early church. And here's what Paul is doing in this passage. Even though the people of God will fail time and time again, we are called to continually behold the high bar of Christian love and to live towards it, to live towards what God designed and affirmed and proclaims for his church rather than acquiescing to what is realistic according to our failure. So let's read Romans 12. We're going to begin in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Yes, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And so, as we're moving into this section, the back half of Romans 12 is, is a list of like two dozen short, powerful commands about how the church is called to live as an alternative community in the midst of a world that is driven by power and inequality and dominance and objectification. And here's, here's like the, the really big revelation that I have to give to you today. I spent time this week studying commentaries about all of these commands and at, at the, that, ex, that are here at the end of the chapter. And here is what I learned. Each of these commands means what it says. Like, it's really not very complicated. Um, like, you can dig into the Greek and you can try to like split it apart and understand, and then you discover that he says love must be sincere, and you're like, what does this mean? And it means that love must be sincere. And so I honestly don't think that these verses need to be taught nearly as much as they need to be meditated on. They need to be marinated in. They need to be lived out over time. That these commands, they... They don't require for us to sort of like pull them apart and dissect them really carefully nearly as much as they need our prolonged attention so that they can begin to be woven into our character and into the life of our church family. And the unifying theme across this second half of Romans 12 is how we become a community of love, a church that learns to love one another in the same way that Jesus loves us. So rather than pulling apart each one of these little phrases, we're just going to talk about a few big ideas from these verses and how we can begin as a church body to try to live towards them together. Sound okay? All right, sweet. Now, one of the reasons why it is so difficult for us to become this kind of a countercultural community is because it is so countercultural. Like, we have 
the resistance of everything that we have lived in our whole lives working against us. And while all human beings, sort of across all time and space, would internally long for the kind of community that the Apostle Paul is describing, one that is full of love and devotion and honor and zeal and sharing with each other, that all of us also know that there is no group of people that naturally possesses what is required to attain this. Each culture, like every culture throughout the world and throughout history, will have their own unique hurdles that resist this kind of community. But I think that in our 21st century American context, there are a few particularly pernicious barriers to becoming this kind of a church. And I want to go through a couple of them. The first barrier, I think, is individualism. Now, in America, and in the Pacific Northwest in particular, rugged individualism has been a central virtue that many of us are ta taught to build our lives upon. It's the bootstraps pioneering mentality that drove many settlers to travel across the country into the dangerous frontier to, to begin to settle the Northwest. And over the last half of, uh, half of a century in particular, we have been trained to value our preferences and our freedoms and our tastes above everything else. From selfies to constant customization to personal Starbucks orders. To be self-actualized is to have it your way in every realm imaginable. And in the 1970s, journalist Tom Wolfe called the baby boomer generation the me generation because they exhibited more narcissistic traits than any generation before them. And all the millennials said, amen. <laughs> and then, in 2013, Time Magazine called millennials the me, me, me generation, because the same narcissistic traits turned out to grow and expand and rise with each generation. The me generation pioneered and gave birth to the me, me, me generation. And then all of the Gen Xers are like middle children that are forgotten in the middle. Why, why, why? Now, these generations, they didn't intentionally seek out becoming increasingly narcissistic, just a cultural emphasis on our personal preference, on our personal desires, on our personal experience, ended up leading to a total self-focus. And in his famous commencement speech, David Foster Wallace writes this. He says, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have that you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you or to the right or left of you on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. Unfortunately, what we discover is that it is impossible to live a life of sincere, devoted, zealous love when you are the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. And while each one of us like, knows that that's a gross, gross idea, 
you know, that like we're repulsed and we bristle at such a description. The water that we swim in and the air that we breathe constantly and consistently tells us that this is what's true. And so it's this kind of individualism that then gives way to the second barrier to the church that we long for, which is consumerism. If our self-actualization comes through individualism, then everything that we need is commodified into consumer goods that reinforce the self. Love no longer requires sacrifice. It shouldn't cost you anything, really. Happiness should be constant, and if you feel down, then here's something to help pick you up. Through years of uh, the, the rise of dating apps, sex has become available to anyone, anytime, free of commitment. And we see that Christian spirituality is not exempt from this either. That as Christians, we can find our preferred worship music. We can podcast our favorite preachers. We can go to a church with your kind of people who all kind of look and talk and act like you. You can customize your experience of Christianity with a million Jesus-y products to satisfy whatever you feel like you need to be able to be sort of centered in the will of God, except that it doesn't actually work, right? As our world has leaned into hyper-individualism, that everyone being able to, to be fully whatever or whoever they want to be, free of judgment or consequence or, or accountability, are we really any more fulfilled or happier? Are we any saner? And as we have greater access to more and more consumer goods, two-day shipping, door-dashed food any time of day that we could possibly want, opportunities for instant sex or pornography, everything customizable, including your coffee order, do people feel any more satisfied? And as individualism and consumerism are embraced in the church, are people becoming any more Christ-like? Are Christians more mature or walking closer to Jesus from having it their way? And because these traits are so baked into us, because of the culture that we have been steeped in, we think the problem is that we need to find the right community, the right church, so that then we can finally experience this thing that we read about in the Bible— Individualism and consumerism pulls many of us into another barrier, which is idealism. Some of us will wake up to this internal longing that are, that's in our souls for this kind of community of love, and then we start to look for the people or the place that can satisfy that longing. Who are those radical Christians that are doing the thing that we all want so badly? How can I find them and join them and be part of them and have my needs met? And so we read about the amazingness of the early church, or we learn about these world-changing communities like the Moravians or the Clapham sect, or we watch the Jesus Revolution movie, and then we become convinced that we need to move into discipleship communes, and then everything will be really good. Right, Steve? Right, Lane? Yeah, that's how it works, right? But this kind of idealism is more than just a barrier. In fact, it is actually an enemy to the community. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes... Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law, and judge one another and God accordingly. 
He says that idealism is an idol that destroys the very community it seeks to build. And this is kind of how it looks or it works in, in kind of our normal lives. I got this framework from a book called Kingdom Values. And here's essentially the cycle. It starts out with excitement. You join this church and you're amazed at just how like normal and non-hypey the vineyard is. Like they're regular people. Like they do pretty good, but you can tell that they don't try too hard, you know. The worship is sincere and passionate. The preaching is fine. <laughs> like, and these aren't fake people. They just really love Jesus. I, I, I could belong here. These are my people. And so you get excited and you join a life group. You sign up. And as soon as you get to your life group and you plug in just a little bit, you get to the next stage. Total disillusionment. Because you discover that these real people who love Jesus are actually just as jacked up and flaky as you are. Wow, these people aren't like so focused on me as I thought they'd be. Their lives are, are actually kind of a mess. And what is the deal with all of these small children? They keep interrupting prayer time. And aren't their parents going to like actually parent these kids and tell them to stop? I thought it was going to be like some group of people who really hear the voice of God and that they share what they hear from God to encourage me in like really normal, non-hypey, unoffensive, non-triggering language. But it actually seems like all of these people are a bit of a mess. Now, if you get to this stage and you press all the way through it, you can make it to the other side. If you press through the disillusionment, you'll get to the next stage, which is recognition. You'll begin to see that Maybe you're frustrated because you have an idol of the ideal and that we're all sort of like doing our best to grow together and that you realize that maybe you have some faulty, unrealistic expectations or maybe you even begin to see that perhaps I'm contributing to the inconsistency and the unhealthy culture of the group through flaky attendance or lack of communication or not bringing anything to share for dinner. not speaking about anyone in particular. Now, if you stick with this, if you stick through that recognition all the way through and you allow the disillusionment and the recognition of your own role in the group to push you towards growth, you'll eventually begin something close to New Testament love. And the good stuff comes on the other side of pressing through the barriers of preference and idealism. But here is what happens more often. As we hit the wall of disillusionment, we join the group, we're all excited, we start to realize they're actually kind of a mess. You hit this wall at the end of disillusionment. And instead of pressing through, you say, this group's too much of a mess, I'm going to go find another group. And then you get really excited about this new group because they, they're like great at all the things that the other group sucked at. And, and then you hit another wall of disillusionment and you're like, ah, these people are also a mess. I'm going to go to another group. And so then you start with that group. You press through for a little while, discover they actually aren't so great either. And then after you've done that like three or four times, you figure out, oh, maybe this church is a mess. And so you go find a new church. And then you start the cycle over and over and over again until you either break through. You choose the route of growth and you break all the way through or you burn out, you deconstruct, and you quit. Is any of this resonating with anybody? 
Like, not with you personally, of course, but like somebody that you know has gone through this. So how do we get to the other side? How do we break free from this cycle of disillusionment? I want to just sit on one phrase from today's reading, and it's in verse 10. Paul writes, be devoted to one another in love. Devotion. In this one sentence, we see two core principles that make up the foundation of Christian community. And the first foundation here is devotion to one another. It is devotion that makes everything else possible. Commitment to one another creates sort of the conditions by which community can begin to grow and to flourish. The word that's used here for devotion is this Greek word, uh, philostorgos, something like that. Uh, did I mention I quit college? And it, refers, <laughs> and it refers to the bond between parents and their children, or it refers to the bond between a husband and a wife. It's the never quit kind of commitment. My, my friend and my mentor, Steve Fish, he has this line that he often speaks at weddings. He says, commitment is the greatest gift that you can give to someone. Commitment is like a greenhouse in which love grows and is nurtured. Those storms blow outside, though crises crash into our lives, love is free to flourish because it is protected by commitment. Beautiful. Well written. Maybe he wrote it. Maybe he ripped it off. I don't know. I'm just kidding, Steve. Of course you wrote that. Um, I ripped it off from him. So, Now, in an article titled Controlling the Unpredictable, The Power of Promise, Lewis Smedes write that, wrote this. He said, when you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons by unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you are stuck with. When everything else tells them they can count on nothing, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. You have made a promise that you intend to keep. Beautiful. Both of these, these quotes, beautiful language, whether it's spoken in an article or at a wedding. But then when we like pause for more than 30 seconds and we sort of like let the shine of those words rub off just a little bit, then we're like, who is actually crazy enough to offer this kind of devotion to non-familial kinds of relationships? Like why on earth would I ever give that kind of commitment to a church or a small group or even a friend? And the call to be devoted to each other, it actually flows from Christ's devotion to us in love. Because Jesus did this. Jesus lives his covenantal com commitment to his people. The Bible says that we are his bride. And that when he says, forsaking all others, he means it. He gave up everything in his devotion to us. And his love for you and for me and for the church is this kind of never quit, all in kind of love. And so commitment to each other creates the conditions for love and relationship to grow. And so years after I left that ministry in Kansas City, I, I had this revelation. I realized that maybe the reason that I had such a hard time connecting to these other people, these super mature followers of Jesus in any kind of meaningful, real relationship, is that many of these people had probably had years of watching on-fire Christians come and go. 
And the way to protect yourself from the feeling of constant loss is to withhold yourself from others. And that doesn't excuse the feeling of exclusion that I had experienced, but it, it started to make sense of it. And do you know how I came to that realization? It was because I had become a pastor in this church that I dearly love and I'm fully committed to, and I had experienced the pain of watching people that I love, people that I have been with, people that I have officiated their weddings, that I have been there shortly after the, the birth of their children, these people who I had prayed with as they went through marital difficulties or they had lost a loved one, these people who I love leave. And you know what? That's kind of part of this whole thing. It's kind of baked in that that happens. And sometimes people leave for really good reasons. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we got to pray for and send out Andrew and Courtney Jones because they took jo jobs on the other side of the country and they moved away. And it was, it was you know, a really hard loss because we love these people, but it was also something worth celebrating as we see them take steps forward in their life. But a lot of times, people bounce for not so good reasons and it, and it hurts. And sometimes it's personal and it really hurts. And so after the great church reshuffling of 2020, I noticed that I started to harden, and I no longer greeted or welcomed new people in our church community. I didn't have any room left in my heart for people I assumed were going to just show up and leave anyway. I was suspicious, and I assumed that anybody who was coming into our community who was experiencing excitement and passion and whatever that behind them in the sort of the unseen realm was a trail of broken relationships from wherever they were coming from. Too vulnerable? Too much? And it took a great deal of healing for me to begin to reopen my heart to people. Not just learning to trust again, but to actually commit to people. To not just start to say, okay, I'm cool with you being here, but to learn how to take the next step that Paul calls us to. Be devoted to these people in love. My friends, how are you devoting yourself to your brothers and your sisters? Who are the people that you are all in and committed to in love? And I ask that question because the Bible gives us this impossible standard and everything that we have been raised to believe or experience or whatever moves in the opposite direction, moves towards self-protection, moves toward individualism or consumerism or idealism. And here's the second foundation that we read in Romans 12 for this kind of community. It's love. We are called to love one another. In verse 9, Paul says that love must be sincere. And the word that Paul uses here is the word agape. And this is the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. This is the love that exists between God and us. The manner of love that we are to learn to offer towards one another with sincerity is the kind of love that God pours out on his bride. And we begin to grow in this kind of love, not by mustering up deeper feelings, but by taking steps of vulnerability towards one another. 
So if commitment protects love, if devotion protects love, and love grow, then love will grow in that commitment through the risk of vulnerability with each other. And I do not say that lightly. This is not something, this is not something that you can snap your fingers and instantly it's there. It takes time. It doesn't happen all at once. But it's also something that we live into intentionally. This is building relationships with brothers and sisters in Jesus with whom we can share the real stuff of our hearts. These are friendships that hold you up when the storms of life come crashing in. These are the friends who support you when your marriage is struggling or when you lose that job or, or after the death of a loved one. These are the people that you go to when you feel the intensity of the pull of sin in your life or when you find yourself caught up in something that you had never imagined that you would end up in. Who are the relationships? Who are the people that you are committed to and vulnerable with? Who are the people who trust you with their heart? And all of this is only possible because of Jesus. We can only be devoted to one another in love because Jesus is devoted to his church in agape love. And we can learn vulnerability with Jesus because, Je because um, with Jesus there is no sin. There is no area of our lives that will ever disqualify us from his invitation to be washed clean by his agape love. And so the salvation of our souls is continually being offered by God. The welcome, the, extent, the, the, the extended welcome of Jesus is continually being offered to us. And he said, there's nothing that you can bring to me that I will not wash clean. There is nothing that you could have done in your past that I cannot overcome through my love. It's profound. And somehow, we are supposed to do the same thing for each other. The church is somehow meant to be the place where broken people can experience the embrace of God's family. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter who your parents are, you are welcome in God's family. Will we fail at this? Yeah. Like, will we step on each other's toes? Of course. Will we hurt each other from time to time? Yeah, almost certainly. But will we forgive each other for failing to be God? We must. Will we lean in to this kind of agape community? We will try. Will we stick with it even when it's hard or awkward, or weird, or a little too vulnerable, or oversharing, or offensive. I'm in if you are. This is where we're going, friends. The bar is set impossibly high, but there is grace for us as we walk towards it. Amen? All right, will you stand? I'm going to invite Carolyn and Jenny to come up. And we're going to move into a time of responding to the Lord. And, and I just want to encourage you, if you feel like God is, is resting on you or if you feel like there's something that, that's being highlighted uh, during the course of the sermon or as we lean into ministry time, we're just going to create space to respond to God. So go ahead and come on up, guys. We're going to 
I'm going to go ahead and surrender it. Thank you all.